All right, the Gospel according to Matthew. So what I'm going to try to do in these videos when we're talking about particular books of the Bible, so we're going to have you know one for each, um, each book, is to not really repeat information that you have available to you elsewhere. So if something's covered in the What's in the Bible videos, or if it's covered in your textbook reading what the New Testament authors really cared about. I'm not going to focus on it too much because you already have the information unless I want to dive in deeper into what they've talked about in those areas. And if I want to kind of harp on that or maybe show you how it works itself out using texts from from the the Bible, then we're going to we're going to do that. But I'm really, really trying hard to use your time well, and so I don't want to just repeat things that you have already read or have already learned. So we're going to go ahead and start with the Gospel of Matthew. I have uh, here an, uh, an old, uh, this is called an icon, basically. It's a Greek Orthodox um, holy, um, holy art, piece of holy art, sacred art. Um, and they would use these as a way to focus their prayers. Actually, people today still in the Orthodox Church, if you've ever been in an Orthodox Church or have or, have, or are Orthodox yourself, uh, would be familiar, familiar with these icons. They serve as a kind of um, focusing point. Some uh, It's in a similar kind of vein, not the same exact thing, but a similar vein as like a rosary or a prayer rope, if you're familiar with those. So they would look at these these icons in an attempt to try and focus their prayers, and maybe um, so. You know, Matthew is a, considered a saint in the Orthodox and Catholic Roman Catholic Church, and so uh, in the in the hopes that maybe their prayers could be formed by who Matthew is, or that they they uh, would be shaped in some way by by Matthew. So, uh, kind of cool. Matthew probably didn't look anything like that at all, but you can see here, um, Matthias, right? Okay, Matthew, right there. Um, just kind of a cool thing. Wanted to show you. So, Matthew, why do we call it Matthew? Well, our manuscripts say Katamathion, which means according to Matthew. So it actually doesn't say that it's written by Matthew. Nothing, if you look and read through the gospel, uh, as you have before watching this video, then you'll see that it never anywhere in the gospel claims authorship for anyone, especially not Matthew. And so what the title according to Matthew means is kind of like this is Matthew's story um, and so it could mean that it's based on his perspective it, and that he passed that on to someone else it could mean that he actually wrote it himself we, we really don't know we don't have anything that explains where Matthew says you know oh yeah I wrote this gospel and you know I called it according to Matthew because I'm the one that wrote it so that means that it's what's called um, formally anonymous, which we're going to talk about in a minute. 
So the early church tradition, though, attributes the gospel to Matthew. So we don't know if if they're the ones that wrote that kata matthion on there, uh, on the manuscripts, or if that was original in the very original, very first manuscript. We, we don't know. But as early, I think, as the second century, we have some evidence that, that this is written by Matthew, the tax collector, the disciple of Jesus, who walked with Jesus. And so in that sense, if we take that perspective, then we will see um, that uh, this, we'll, we'll understand this to be an account from a Jewish perspective, from someone who was an original disciple of Jesus, who walked with Jesus, and who was a witness to the resurrection, and who saw the ascended, or the resurrected Jesus, and someone who was familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, with the, with the Hebrew Bible. And so these are all things that we want to keep in mind as we're as we're reading this text. I mean, I think regardless of, of whether you accept uh, that it was written by Matthew, the disciple of Jesus, it's definitely prevalent that this is written by someone who's very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures and someone who is trying to make a case that Jesus is, is a continuation of what God was doing in the Hebrew scriptures as, as accounted in the Hebrew scriptures. So formally anonymous, what that means is that in a formal sense, in a very literal formal sense, there's no, we don't know who the author is. It's anonymous. And that's true of actually all of the gospels. Whereas in a letter from Paul in the very beginning, so if I just flip over to, you know, for example, I'm in 1 Corinthians, okay? The very first verse says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brothers and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. So he identifies from Paul to the church in Corinth. We don't have anything like that in the Gospels, especially not in the Synoptics. Now, John in his Gospel definitely hints at it, but something to recognize is that these are anonymous, and so we're trying to. We're, we're operating a little bit in the dark, and we don't want to be too confident about saying who who wrote these because they actually don't claim any authorship for themselves. It was probably written in the mid-60s AD, which is around 30 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. So, again, as we've talked about, there's been some time where Matthew has been reflecting on who Jesus is and is writing to a particular circumstance within the church at that time. And so it's important to recognize that, again, this is the narrative is not just kind of cold facts. It's a story that was written to illustrate certain points about Jesus's ministry and to carry his authoritative teaching into a particular context in the church. So we want to read that uh, with this idea in mind. And we'll dive into that in just a second. So I told you that on the quizzes, one of the questions that I'm going to ask you is, what did Matthew, what did Mark, what did Luke really care about, right? What was their central message that they wanted to get across? And this actually is from your book, and I thought it was pretty good. I might, uh, we'll talk about it, I might change a couple words here or there, but I, I thought this was good, so we'll go ahead and stick with this. This is um, on page 36 in your in your book. In your textbook, what did Matthew really care about? Matthew wrote to identify, defend, and promote Jesus of Nazareth as the Davidic Messiah who fulfilled the Old Testament. And I would say that maybe 
maybe even more than just fulfilled the Old Testament, something like fulfilled fulfilled the expectations of of God acting in history to redeem his people. So not just the Old Testament, but the way that they were reflecting on and the way that they were interpreting the Old Testament. Matthew was writing to say that Jesus is the one who fits the bill. Jesus is the one who we've been waiting for as Jews. And not only that, the Jews, when Jesus went to them, rejected him. And the very people that should have accepted him rejected him. And we see that with the conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees, that they keep going after him. They keep, they keep trying to, to discount him and discount his teaching. And Matthew's point in bringing that up and highlighting that conflict is to show that uh, even though they didn't see it, Jesus was the one that they were waiting for. Jesus is the one who fulfills those expectations. And so a big issue then is that in the early church, in Matthew's era in the 60s AD, there were a lot of Gentiles, non-Jewish people who were coming to follow Jesus. And so this, this kind of starts a tension within the church. They're wondering, these Gentiles that are coming to follow Jesus, do they need to become Jews, basically? Do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to obey these food laws that we observe, like not eating pork? Do they need to worship only, or they, yeah, to, to not work on the Sabbath? All of these things are very, very real issues as the Jews and the Gentiles are coming together into one church. And so, and, and so Matthew in writing this is making the case that the Jews in general rejected Jesus. And because of that rejection, Jesus was crucified. The Jews at that time. And uh, they turned him over to the Roman authorities so that he could be killed and executed. And because of that, God has expanded the gospel. God has expanded the kingdom of, of God, his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, to the Gentiles, to the nations. And that's uh, what we'll see at the end of Matthew as he's making the case that this message of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, they're the synonymous basically. Um, I just basically don't want to get into the argument of, of the difference there, but <laughs> there's, there is um, now grounds to go to the nations, go to the gospel, go to the, the Gentiles with this message of the kingdom. So again, this is something that will definitely be on your quiz. <laughs> At the very least, I'm going to ask you to reproduce this. Uh, so something to uh, something to memorize, definitely, so that you know the message of Matthew and what Matthew really cared about. Actually, I got this table. You can tell I just kind of scanned it right out of your textbook because I thought it was a really good structure of Matthew. So what you see here is the first four uh, chapters. We have uh, Jesus's birth and preparation for ministry. Then you have the Sermon on the Mount, which is unique to Matthew, unique material. We have Jesus' demonstration of authority, chapters 8 through 10. Then Jesus faces that opposition, remember I told you, uh, to the um, with, with the Pharisees right there. Then the climax of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, which is, a, which is one of the regions uh, that he was operating in. Then Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. 
and then the passion and resurrection. And so this also is something that's very important that I think I want you to know, uh, that I want you to be able to, to recognize and to maybe perhaps put in order of how these how this works in the Gospel of Matthew because I think it helps you trace the argument of how Matthew is making his case. So this is going to be an important thing for you to know as well. So central concepts. This is going to mirror a little bit um, what you see on page 37 in your textbook, but I want to go into it in a little bit more depth. So the first thing is that Jesus is the son of David. So a really important concept is that for the Jewish people living in the time of Jesus, they looked back on David and they thought, man, this David guy was like amazing. He was almost like they viewed him kind of like, you know, a Superman or like maybe the way that people now look back on George Washington or something like that. He was this amazing leader who the uh, they're like, man, I really just wish that David was king right now and that he could lead us in a rebellion against these Roman oppressors who are, they are, you know, they, they would think of like dirty Gentiles. They're, they're, they don't know God. They don't worship God. Um, they worship these other gods, the, you know, um, the, the Roman gods, all of the uh, Roman pantheon. And so we really wish that David was here so he could lead us in a rebellion against Rome so that we could have our independence like we did in the Maccabean period. So this is what the people in Israel, the Jews, would have, would have probably a big group of them were thinking at that time. And so to call, for Jesus to be called the son of David is a very, very bold claim. For Jesus to be called the son of David means that he is in the line of David. In a sense, he is, he is like David and he therefore is the rightful king of Israel. So we see this in a, in a bunch of places, but a big one that we see is, um, in the genealogy. So if we look at that genealogy in the beginning of the book, um, in chapter one verses 1 through 17, the, uh, you can see here that he goes from, I'm not going to read it all um, word for word, but the very first thing, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so by saying that, he connects Jesus back all the way to Abraham through David to their, to their present day. Um, and so he goes from Abraham, verse 2, all the way to Jesse, verse 6, the father of David, the king. And then he goes from David, the father of Solomon, all the way down to Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ 14 generations and so people kind of get um, thrown off by this sometimes Matthew has has crafted this um, such that such that he makes the case that Jesus is uh, in the line of David and so uh, if you look there's not really there's not necessarily a claim that that um, that, they, that it was literally like 
one person to the next person to the next person to the next person as we see here as we might think in like a census document or something like that today this is more of kind of a he's making a literary case and kind of truncating some of those generations so that uh, he can make the case that Jesus is related to David and is the son of David. So we see that in the genealogy that Jesus is the son of David. We also have these passages where Jesus is referred to as the son of David. So we see that in Matthew chapter 12, for example. One of the places we see it is in um, the very beginning where he compares himself to David, where Jesus compares himself to David in the narrative. Um, I'll read uh, in chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And so they had this rule. There's no there's no law against plucking heads of grain and eating um, in the field on the, on the Sabbath uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible. But they had the Pharisees had built up this rule that basically they were essentially kind of harvesting and therefore they were doing work. And so they had this rule, you can't do this on the Sabbath. And so then Jesus uh, replies and says, he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what it means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So Jesus calls himself Son of Man, which is a whole other thing. We're going to talk about that when we get to the Gospel of Mark. But the point here is that he compares himself to David. He says, I'm just doing what David did. So the implicit there's an implicit message there that Jesus is like David. He's claiming that level of authority for himself. Furthermore, if you go over in chapter 12, verse 22, uh, it says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blinded and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, Jesus healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And he goes on and talks about, um, uh, basically defends, defends himself. But people were saying, can this be the son of David? And they're, they are recognizing that Jesus is the son of David. So the point is not that the crowds recognize that Jesus was the son of David. Because uh, when Luke, for example, talks about this same incident, he does not, I believe, include that statement that Jesus is the son of David. I just want to make sure here. Luke 11. Yeah, see, uh, Luke 11, 14 through 23 does not mention Jesus, or Jesus being called the son of David. So again, the point is not necessarily that, that historically happened, though that is important. The point is, why did Matthew include this when Luke did not? right? It's not necessarily an error or a, discre or a discrepancy or anything like that. It's not a lack of truthfulness. It just wasn't relevant to Luke's point, but it was relevant to Matthew's point because Matthew is making the point that Jesus is the son of David. So he made sure to include that the crowds are recognizing this as well. So Jesus is the son of David, which means that he's the rightful king of Israel, means he's the king of the kingdom of God, and that he has come to lead Israel, to lead God's people.
Another thing, Jesus is the new Moses. So there are parallels that are drawn between Jesus and Moses. Now, maybe you uh, aren't familiar with Moses. That's fine. Moses was the one who led God's people, led Israel out of Egypt. They were slaves. He led them out of Egypt into the promised land. The big thing that he did that he's associated with is the law. God gave a law to Israel to govern them. And Moses was the one who presented this law to them. He went up on the mountain and met with God. And when he came back down, he had these stone tablets, which we know as the Ten Commandments, um, or the Decalogue is sometimes called. Well, Matthew is making the point that Jesus is the new Moses. He's actually better than Moses. So we see this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Let's look at let's look at verse 21, 521. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says fool, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you're offering your gift to the altar and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So all through the Sermon on the Mount, you see that Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, or you, you have read, or you've been told. And he's referring here to either the, the laws that Moses gave to Israel in the Hebrew Bible, that, that are recorded in the Hebrew Bible, or possibly sometimes oral laws that the Pharisees had developed, or the scribes and Pharisees had developed, that kind of went beyond the, the, um, the, the Hebrew Bible. So Jesus' point here, if you look, He's saying, you've heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. So he's actually reinterpreting um, the, the laws that they had at that time and actually providing a more, a more strict interpretation or a higher, a higher standard, if you will. He's saying that you can obey the letter of the law. Okay, like, so don't commit murder, right? I didn't kill anyone, right? You hear that all the time. You can obey the letter of the law, but actually that's not the whole point. It's a, the, the law was meant as like an extreme barrier, right? Like all the way, do not cross this boundary. But the actual spirit of it is that you won't even be angry with your brother. If you're not angry with your brother or, you know, or sister, angry with someone else, then you will never, you'll never get to murder if you resolve these issues beforehand. And so he's, He's really upping the ante in a sense and saying it's not enough to just obey the letter of the law. You also have to think of what's the purpose for which this law was written. And he's he's helping them see that even though they may obey the letter of the law, their heart may still be far from God. And that's the that's the error of the scribes and Pharisees is that they would obey the letter of the law really well, right? They wouldn't even pluck the heads of grain on the Sabbath so that they weren't thought to be working. But they also, if someone uh, was, you know, if uh, their cow fell into a ditch on the Sabbath, they might make the argument, well, you shouldn't get them out because that'd be like working, 
or something like that. So the, the point is that Jesus is kind of like seen as the new Moses, and there's been tons of books written on this, and this is a really interesting idea. And so Matthew's making the point that Jesus is, is a new Moses. He's actually superior to Moses because he's interpreting the law um, in a deeper and more, uh, more substantial way than Moses did. Jesus is God with us. So this is an interesting thing. Um, it's in uh, Matthew chapter 1. Okay, and this refers to the virgin birth of Jesus. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, all right? So Matthew 1, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So, it's a very interesting issue going on here. Um, in Isaiah, uh, where this is uh, quoted from Isaiah 7.14, the point of of what the prophet is saying is that God is with us and that God is God is for us. God is going to deliver us from this calamity that we are um, are going through. And if we had time, then I would go ahead and dive into that. And um, and if you want to know more about that, we can talk about it. But God will deliver us. God is with us. Kind of God is on our team. Well, what Matthew does is he takes that passage and he actually expands on that idea and takes it really literally and says that the the child the child because the child has been conceived by the holy spirit is literally god with us god among us god walking among us as a person but i think also at the same time god is with us god is on our team because he will save jesus will save his people from their sins so that means that God is sending Jesus for a purpose, on a mission, to save the people for their sins, which means that God is on our team, God is contending with us, and fighting fighting on our behalf. All right? So, Emmanuel means God with us in Hebrew. Im-anu-el. God. Uh, so, El means God. Im means with. Anu means us. So, Im-anu-el means, so, Emmanuel means God with us. Okay, Jesus is the better Israel. We see this. This is very interesting. Jesus is baptized by John in the uh, in the Jordan River. The Spirit comes upon him. John sees it. There's a voice from heaven. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is in Matthew chapter 4. Um, 
And after fasting for forty days and forty nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so what we are showing here, what, what Matthew is trying to show here, is that Israel, which which wandered in the desert for forty years, so forty years, not forty days, but forty years, Israel was tempted and failed multiple times. They were often very faithless. And what what Matthew is showing is that Jesus is succeeding where Israel failed. So there's if you look in your Bible um, in the early chapters of Matthew, there are all of these kind of paragraphs set off from the normal text. And those are citations from, at least it is in my Bible, it probably is in yours as well. Those are citations from the Hebrew scriptures. And Matthew is making the point. He's saying, this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. Matthew 1.22. So it was written by the prophet. Um, uh, Matthew 2.5. Matthew 2.17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Matthew 3, 3, for this is who, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Now that's talking about John the Baptist. And so Matthew is really making a huge point here that Jesus is fulfilling the expectations of the Hebrew Bible. And in a lot, and one of those ways that he's doing that is by being the son of David, by being the new Moses, by being God with us, and by being a better Israel, that just Jesus will succeed where Israel failed. So we see that in the fulfillment passages and in the temptations. So just one more central concept, and this is true of the synoptic gospels, but not so much the gospel of John, okay? Is that when you look at what is it that Jesus went around talking about, it was the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God was this idea that it would be the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, God's promises to be to make Israel into a great people, to give them a land to live in, and to make them a blessing to all the nations. And it, it developed into this idea that they would be brought to prominence among the nations, that they would be seen as God's special people. And then along with that, that the Gentiles would be judged for being, for being faithless, for not being connected with Yahweh, that, and that God would reign literally in a kingdom from Jerusalem. And so Jesus goes around proclaiming the message of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, except he is redefining it from these expectations. Okay? He is not saying that um, that I'm the son of David that's going to lead to a, a rebellion. Right? He, if you look in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about being poor in spirit. Right? So Matthew, Matthew 5 2 let's start there and he opened his mouth these are called the beatitudes and he opened his mouth and taught them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so interesting so it's the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to those that that fight and go to war with people um and kind of create this kingdom the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit hmm look at verse 9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Interesting. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Interesting. So Jesus is taking this idea of the kingdom of heaven and actually redefining it to say, the kingdom of heaven belongs to the meek and the lowly and um, the peacemakers, right? 
they are the ones who will be great in the kingdom, not those who are trying to violently overthrow the the uh, the Roman the Roman rule. And so it's important to show this, I think, because Matthew's point in bringing this up is that this is one of the reasons why the Pharisees and the people, uh, the Jews at that time, didn't get who Jesus was, because they were expecting this kind of military type of leader who would come and lead them to victory as the son of David, for a king like David, and then rule literally from Jerusalem um, over the world or rule over Israel and kick out all the Gentiles. Well, Matthew's saying that Jesus wasn't like that. And so therefore, um, therefore, that's one of the reasons why probably he was rejected is because his teachings didn't match with what they were expecting regarding the kingdom of God. All right. Wrapping up here, the Great Commission. All right, CBU, a university committed to the Great Commission. This is a really big deal. Matthew 28. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible, Matthew chapter 28, all the way at the end. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So this is after the death, after his death, after his resurrection. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is a really important idea because, again, Matthew's talking about how the message of the kingdom, right, the uh, the message of following Jesus as as king uh, of uh, king of the kingdom of heaven, of repenting, of uh, being baptized, of observing all that Jesus has commanded, all of that is expanding from from the Jews only all the way to the nations. Because Jesus' first followers were all Jews. He's saying, no, you need to take this message to all the nations. And I think that that is Matthew's way of helping us see that that this is the way that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham, that he would be a blessing to all the nations, is through this message of the kingdom that Jesus' disciples go forth and share with the nations. So, in sum, what did Matthew really care about? He really cared about showing that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures, of the expectations that people had, that he was the son of David, but and, and the king of the kingdom, but not in the way that, that the Jews originally expected, which is why he was rejected and why this message goes to the nations um, from Jesus' original disciples. This would have been unthinkable at that time. They would have thought, oh my gosh, Jesus, are you crazy? Are you on drugs? Why are you telling us to go talk to the Gentiles? They're dirty people that worship foreign gods and they're unclean and all of this stuff. Well, Jesus is saying, now, these are the very people that I'm calling you to go and love and serve in my name, to teach them to obey, to baptize them, to teach them to observe everything that he's commanded them. And Jesus is saying, and I will be with you. Even though I'm, I'm ascending into heaven, I'm not going to be physically present with you. I'm actually going to be with you. And you go forward with me. Um, and, and I think that, that can, uh, talks about Jesus is present with his followers, uh, followers with the Spirit. But we'll talk about that when we get to the book of Acts. So um, looking forward to talking with you about this more in person when I see you on Wednesday.